Oh, good evening. Good evening, Sangha. Last night, Narayan spoke about the path, the lineage, the aliveness of the lineage that is part of our tradition for, for a very long time. And she spoke about this is a path of happiness and a path of peace. Did you have ideas about how this retreat would be for you beforehand? Ideas about calm? No? <laughs> Some of you didn't. Often we come into retreat with ideas about what we think it'll be like. And there's often a gap between the ideas of how a retreat will unfold and what it's really like. Because life on retreat, the actual practice is quite straightforward. It's simple in a certain sense. And for the most part, we're not used to being simple. We're used to thinking about things. And in the zeitgeist of this time, we need to turn to a practice that is capable of restoring our hearts. We need to turn to a path that gives us some measure of access to something that is not distraught, not as a means of bypassing or avoiding the truths, the difficult truths within our beautiful and troubled world, but in the spirit of responding, in the spirit of keeping our joy and our inspiration and our engagement alive. The Buddha was called Sukhiya. Sukhiya means the happy one. And the monastics and the followers of the Buddha were known for their radiance, for their joy, for their happiness. And the happiness that this path points to is expanded. It's It's expanded beyond conventional ideas of what happiness or pleasure or joy may be. We're cultivating a kind of inner fulfillment and integrity that has to do with understanding, that has to do with how it is to let go into the innate goodness of our own hearts. And it was so wonderful to meet with the groups this morning. It's different to sit up here and not having you know, been talking to most of you and have you be wearing masks. So it was, it was wonderful to, to feel touched by the sincerity and the vulnerability, by the sense of the inner authority of your practices, by your willingness to really engage in, the, in this time, these days, this space together. And it takes a lot of trust, doesn't it? Not to sit and figure things out by thinking about it, but to actually be 
open to this massive curriculum of how it is to make space for the kind of understanding that's deeper than the words, that can be expressed through the words, but that's deeper than the words. I want you just to notice in your body, you know, what, what arises when you hear the word happiness? What arises when you hear the word peace? How is it if you feel the flavor of the word acceptance? In the poems that Narayan shared, the women shared a lot. You know, they shared their journeys of what we might call a path of descent entering that which is unfamiliar, entering that which is difficult or challenging. And they share their journey of awakening, their journeys of, of return. And tonight I'm going to speak about uh, the, the role of acceptance. And when I say acceptance, I don't mean approval. I just mean acceptance in a momentary moment-to-moment kind of way, the role of acceptance and the deepening happiness that becomes available as we actually metabolize our lives. I taught a retreat here last week as well, and there were many, many people, mental health care professionals, essential workers, parents, you know, and a theme that really came up in the practice discussions was just how much has been not yet fully metabolized with regard to the pandemic. Now, just how it's been to get through day by day by day in the particular conditions of one's own life. And we come into a space like this, and often it's like going at 60 miles an hour in a station wagon down the road, and the back of the station wagon is full of a bunch of stuff. Going, going, going and slamming on the brakes, and what happens? Everything from the back just rushes into the front. It can be that felt sense a bit when we come on retreat in person in this way. So we're practicing over and again. This path is an embodied path. This path is one down and in, not up and out. I spent the first 18 years of my life in Fargo, North Dakota, Fargo like the movie. That's where I'm from originally. My mom was a teacher, my dad a veterinarian, and I grew up in the Unitarian Universalist Church, was actually, which was actually a really wonderful um, way to be, to be raised when it comes to religion because I was always empowered to find out for myself, not to follow any kind of prefabricated path, but to really look, you know, what's, what's my path? And at that time, my experience 
of our community was like a lot of kind of cerebral, liberal, intellectual approaches, good ones. And I was hungering, you know, I hungered for a deeper experience of the mystery, a deeper experience of spirituality, and really a deeper way of living that was different than learning to think well. And my Dharma practice began when I was 19 years old with compassion practice. And it was a good thing at that time that compassion practice crossed my path because I was in so much suffering. I wouldn't have had the discipline to practice mindfulness of breathing. I needed in a very loving way, in a very tender way, to turn toward the wounds, to turn toward some of what felt, you know, like a lot in my experience. And it was really the heart practices that helped the insight begin to take root, begin to be something I could absorb. And so this is part of the trust When we open in this way, we don't know what's going to come up. You don't decide, right? Like, oh, why am I thinking about this event from 30 years ago? Why is this day more peaceful, this day less peaceful? Izumi Shikubu, a great poet, born about 976 BCE, This is kind of an image for us tonight. Watching the moon at dawn or dusk, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky. I know myself completely. No part left out. to know yourself completely. The task of a whole lifetime, right? We keep emerging and growing and becoming more of who and what we are. And all you have to do is be willing. You know, you don't even have to know how exactly. But just to be willing to know, to know yourself completely. My first Dharma teacher was my voice teacher. When I was uh, in high school, in junior high, I took voice lessons. I went to performing arts school. A lot of dancing, a lot of singing in my life. And I remember at that time, things were pretty challenging, you know? And I would go in and see her. Rachel Barrett was her name. And if if I was anxious, my, my voice would be crackly. If I was angry, my voice would have a certain intensity. If I was feeling insecure and uncertain, there was, a, there was a shakiness in my voice. And she would just meet me, never fixing, never giving advice, but she would meet me over 
and over and over, the way that a kind-hearted awareness meets an experience, just seeing, just allowing, and the intimacy of that, the intimacy of that kind of availability. And this is so much of what we're training here is to soften the grip of that which needs to direct so much of our lived experience. To soften the grip and actually be able to touch. This is a quote from a teacher named Debbie, and I wish I knew more about her because I really appreciate her words. And she's speaking to how we can come to practice and be quick to want to let go. Have you, have you felt that? Why can't I let go of this grief? <laughs> Why can't I let go of this restlessness? It's really the wisdom that lets go. We, we can let go a little bit, but it's really the long process of conscious awareness that creates the conditions within which letting go happens on its own. And she said... She was teaching some students who um, thought they were having trouble letting go. She said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things? Don't touch things in full awareness with a totally open heart. The first experience is of touch a profound contact between things and with the universe without mental commotion. Everything begins there. Touching, opening, accepting deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, you can bring on mental turmoil. We, we, we touch. It's the intimacy that was being pointed to in, in the poem. And touching is an act of acknowledging. It's like this right now. An act of open hands, accepting. And when I say accept again, I'm not talking about um, approving or liking. But what's, what's the alternative? You know the experience of non-acceptance. Did you have something to say? Can you repeat the last sentence of the quote one more time? You bet. Sure. It's good. It's, it's a good one. If you let go, the poem or the quote, the quote, if you let go before touching deeply, you can bring on mental turmoil. So it's an invitation to get up close and personal with our, our experience. You know, I know in my lived experience, the opposite of acceptance feels jittery, feels like a struggle, feels like contention. You know, and in the spirit of the instructions around non-urgency, just ask, is it, is it possible to meet this moment with non-contention? Even if what you're meeting is really tough, 
even if you don't like it one bit and you're struggling and you're fighting and you're wanting to find your escape route, is it possible to meet this moment with non-contention? And when we orient in this way just by the willingness, we get washed with dhamma. It soaks in despite ourselves. It's like the, the intention and the practice just begins to shine through these structures that keep us separate, that keep us tight, that keep us knotted up. So what we are cultivating is a kind of a flexibility of perception. The Dharma path is opening to knowing and perceiving that which we have been trained out of knowing. You know, the, the normative culture creates a narrowing of what the heart can perceive. And, and we're opening that back up to see more of the way things are. Like you see one another in this room. Do you see the space in this room? You hear my voice in this room. Do you sense the energy, the felt sense of the room? I, uh, I've served for many years as guiding teacher of a beautiful retreat center in northern New Mexico. Where it's surrounded by hundreds of thousands of acres of national forest. And a few years ago, when Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, came out, People would come on retreat and just give me copies. I amassed about eight copies. (laughs) I gave most of them away, but I travel with this book when I teach because it's so good. She's teaching Dhamma through the lens of indigenous wisdom as a mother, as a professor. It's just a brilliant being. And she speaks about something called the grammar of animacy. Grammar, like how we put things together, how we, how we relate to each other and ourselves. And the word animacy is a state of being alive or animate. You feel that? Animacy. As we, as we practice meditation, we, we come to know our aliveness, our real aliveness, in an immediate way that, that doesn't have so much to do with personal history, but has to do with beingness. She says, when I'm in the woods with my students, teaching them the gifts of plants and how to call them by name, I try to be mindful of my language to be bilingual between the lexicon of science and the grammar of animacy. Although they still have to learn scientific roles and Latin names, I hope I'm also teaching them to know the world as a neighborhood of non-human residents. To know that, as Thomas Berry has written, 
we must say of the universe that it is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. How is it to be in this Sangha, on this land, as a communion of subjects, not as a collection of objects? How is it to know your experience with this kind of spirit as more of a verb? You know, on one level, we're observing something that on a certain level could be considered a process, not a thing. I mean, what is a thought? Can you grab it? It might feel like you can. It's not really made of anything. Yet so powerful, we build our lives, we build nations around something so inherently insubstantial yet remarkably powerful. Intimacy, sentience. In a few minutes, I'm going to share a, a story uh, with you. Story, a mythological story. And as I was creating this talk this afternoon, I looked out the window of where we stay in the teacher village, and I saw something that my mind didn't exactly immediately identify. You know, when you see something and the perceptual factor doesn't, it takes a few minutes to kick in. It was a bobcat. You don't have to be afraid. (laughs) They're not interested in people or chasing after people. They run the other way. They're vulnerable creatures. And I've done a lot of practice at IMS for maybe 18 years. I saw a white ferret in the wild once. I've never seen a bobcat here. You know, where I live in southwestern Colorado, in the Wamanooch Mountains, you know, they're, they're very, it's a very special thing to see. And the bobcat lingered for quite a while. And I was thinking about Robin Wall Kimmerer's words this grammar of animacy, because I could look and see, oh, that's a bobcat, I know what it is, on to the next thing. But I just hung out with this wild, beautiful, you know, creature. And then I went outside and it looked at me for a while. And then it turned and ran. You know the way a wild animal runs, it's different. Turned and ran, but there was an encounter there. And I was just appreciating her words being in the presence of this wild animal. And I thought that our practice and knowing ourselves completely, it's a little like, you know, wild animals come out when they feel safe enough. Otherwise, they stay in the shadows, they stay hidden. And our deeper qualities are a little like wild animals. They come out when they feel safe enough and we're cultivating the conditions that invite uh, more of who we are, more of what's here for us to come forth. And it takes that kind of care, that kind of sensitivity.
I want to tell you a story. And as much as in the practice, as much as we let go of stories, they also define our lives. We know ourselves through stories. We want to see the true nature of stories and also to inhabit the stories that are ours to tell. How many of you know the Sumerian myth of Inanna? Just a few of you. Okay. The Sumerian myth of Inanna, this this takes place, this is said to take place between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, uh, not far from modern-day Baghdad. And her journey speaks to me to our journeys as women as we mature and go through various descents and returnings as the path uh, unfolds. And this is a myth, so it's not to be taken literally. <laughs> and myths you know, include archetypes. They include images more, that are more dreamlike than literal. So bear that in mind as I tell you, tell you her, her story. So Inanna, the story begins with these words. From the great above, Inanna, the queen of heaven and earth, opened her ear to the great below. So she begins by listening. Listening in. And as she listens... She hears the cries of her sister, Eresh Kagal, who's the queen of the underworld. And her sister is grieving her husband who died. And as she's hearing her sister's cries from the underworld, this represents the deeper parts of ourselves that have been unattended to. It's kind of symbolic in that way. And Inanna decides to go down and be with her sister. And as she goes down, she knows that nobody returns from the underworld. And they definitely don't return the way they went in. That's the nature of the, de- of the descent. And so she begins to go down to see her sister, her grieving sister. And there are seven gates And at each of these gates, something is taken away from her. Her golden scepter, taken away. Her lapis beads, taken away. Her clothing, taken away. Her identities, taken away. And when she arrives, it's said that she arrives naked, and bowed low. Those are strong words. So she's, she has so much taken away. And I think about some of what life has been like the past two years, both on an individual level and on a collective level. There's been a descent. You know, maybe some of you experienced some measure of descent in your work and what it took for you to adapt. Maybe for some of you being home with your families or children. Maybe for some of you, just the isolation. 
And, and perhaps you know the experience of dissent as an immigrant. Or living in a whitewashed culture. You know, it's, or, or aging. Aging can feel like one thing after another being taken away. So she descends, and as the myth goes, she's sentenced to death. And this is, you, you get the metaphor here, right? Something is being relinquished. Something is being let go of. And that's inevitable if you walk this path fully. This is not a path of acquisition. <laughs> it's a path of radical non-acquisition. I think about my path, and if I would have known in the beginning <laughs> what I would be asked to put down, I don't think I would have taken the first step. <laughs> but boy, am I grateful I did. Wouldn't have it any other way. So she's sentenced to death, and as the myth goes, this is graphic language, she hangs naked on a meat hook for three days and three nights. And... Uh, And so some of what's being let go of is is her undigested sorrow and her undigested grief. And she's smart because she has people checking on her. She let people know she was going into the underworld. And her her friend, Ninshabar, is on the upper world, and he calls for help. He says, Inan is in trouble. we got to help. And he does it in a very interesting way. He has some dirt under his fingernail, and he scrapes the dirt out from under his fingernails, and creates these two winged creatures called Gala to fly down into the underworld to Erekishel's realm. And there's, there's, a, there's a message here, and just in the fertility of the dirt and the soil, you know, something that we might consider to be throw, throwing away is like f- the, the fertile soil, the fertile darkness. And as these gala descend, her sister, who's grieving, is crying out in the depths of her pain. She says, oh, my back. And these winged creatures say, oh, your back. She says, oh, my liver. They say, oh, your liver. She says, oh, my heart. And they say, oh, your heart. She says, oh, my neck. And they say, oh, your neck. And so they meet her pain with empathy. They meet her pain by mirroring her pain, not by judging, not by fixing, just by mirroring in simple and honest words. It's a teaching for us. You know, oh, Oh, my heart. (laughs) Oh, my shoulders. Oh, all that's here for me. You know, you may, for some of us, it's almost easier to meet somebody outside of ourselves in that way than meet our own inner experience in in this way. And so the path is hugely inviting us to... uh, be birthed through what may feel like contractions in the context of the practice. And so Eresh Kigal is so touched by their kindness that she says, I'll do anything. I'll, uh, I'll make there be more water in the oceans. I'll return the vastness of the sky. I'll, 
I'll do anything. And they say, all we want is Inanna's body. And so they breathe into Inanna life with their compassion. They breathe into Inanna life and they uh, accompany her out of the underworld. This is part of the return. This is not unlike some of you know Joseph Campbell's work, The Hero's Journey. This is the heroine's journey, but it's ancient. And, um, and it's interesting that instead of returning with more jewels or more riches, she returns um, more integrated, more whole. She returns having joined her sister in mourning a death. And as I share this, the word that comes to mind is is a word in Pali, the word namo. When we do the refuges, we say namo, namo, namo. And namo is an act of honoring that which is worthy of honor. Namo means revering that which is worthy of reverence, placing our hearts upon something. Namo, namo. So what she was doing was deliberate and purposeful, and she's descending into the depths of what's already here. That's the metaphor of the story. I'm going to share the second half of the story. These are some words from Cynthia Ocelli. Proceed. To achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. All the seeds in the ground as spring is around the corner. The shell cracks, its insides come out, and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it might look like complete destruction. It's the messiness of it, right? The messiness of the practice, and it's okay. It's okay that there's some messiness. And so, so she comes back to heaven and earth, and her husband has basically taken up her throne. He's got dancing people and all these. He's basically eating bonbons on the throne, you know, wearing silks and swaddled and protected. And, and she banishes her husband. And he flees. He doesn't want to go to the underworld. He, he flees, and he has a dream that his sister is listening to him. And he reaches out to his sister and asks um, for help. And she has compassion. And basically, they know that somebody has to live in the underworld. And what they decide to do is to have... The sister live for half the year in the underworld, and him for half the year live, you know, heaven and earth, and then to change, to go back and forth. And it's part of the agreement and the understanding so that none of them just inhabit one world. From my friend Pamela Weiss's book, A Bigger Sky, Awakening a Fierce Feminine Buddhism, She says, here, as Inanna draws the boundary, here Inanna embodies the experience of loss and loneliness 
and assimilates the lessons she learned in the underworld from her sister, who was also grieving the death of her spouse. In this part of the story, we witness her coming down to earth and getting messy, where transcendence meets transformation, perfection meets limitation, godliness meets and blends with human grit and tenderness. And in some ways, that's some of the alchemy that we're in here. You know, from the suffering arises the compassion. From the trust of the moment, the willingness, is it possible to meet this moment without contention? We begin to, the, the moment reveals something to us. And the reason Inanna didn't just banish him to the underworld immediately was that she missed him. This is kind of this beautiful dance of, of light and dark, above and below, the deep inner depths married with the activity in the world. Anima, animus. And that each has their place, the, the fertile ground of, of darkness and also the luminosity of heaven and earth, so to speak. I'm leaving out parts of this story because I don't want to leave you here all night. But uh, hopefully you get the gist of what the myth is bringing forth. These are all parts of ourselves coming into I knew myself completely, no part left out. And so we, we need a practice. We need the practice and path to guide our way, and we also really need one another. Have you been to your own version of the underworld? I know I have, and not just once. Have you emerged from a time of challenge or difficulty with some kind of deeper understanding or capacity to show up than what you had prior? Yeah, that's how it goes for most of us. Whether it's a loss or a diagnosis, or aging, or change in relationship, or something totally unexpected in life. There's times on the path when we uncover, and times when we cover. And the intuitive awareness that we come to abide in, you know, ever more brightly as the path unfolds, has a natural intelligence about it. it it can help to guide the way. And this flexibility of perception can help to guide the way. So just this orientation, as you continue in the retreat, in the direction of acceptance, even if you don't like it, even if you don't know where it's going, this orientation to being here Without manipulating the moment too much. I mean, we, we return to the anchor, but it's really about contact, intimacy. 
And then we can put down some of the striving and the attainment that gets so trained into our bodies and hearts. Always needing to be more, better, you know, it's, it's painful actually. And the more that we open to the possibility of this kind of mindfulness and acceptance, um, which can feel like a risk, can feel like a risk. Okay, what's this going to be like? What's this going to be like? The The more that that which stands between us and freedom begins to dissolve a bit more, begins to melt a bit more, We become available for the Dhamma. And there's this paradox that, you know, in a certain sense, the more we die, the more we live. You know, the more that which no longer serves is laid to rest, the more we, uh, the more alive we become, the more the Dhamma may flow through our hearts. And we awaken into the wild and beauty of who and what we are. And that's where that image of that bobcat today just stopped me in my tracks. It's like, all right. You know, not, not necessarily other. Yeah, so we're really making space, touching with conscious awareness so the Dhamma can do, can do the work, the magic, the mystery through our hearts, through our communities. I'll end with a poem by Lisa Lowitz called Waiting. You keep waiting for something to happen. The thing that lifts you out of yourself. Catapults you into doing all the things you've put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life, but somehow never quite get to. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align, something to give. Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, the dishes, the job, it all stacks up. While you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering the piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of waking. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way. And then you turn 40. (laughs) Or 50. Or 60. (laughs) We'll keep going, yeah. (laughs) And some part of you realizes you are not alone, and you find signs of this in the animal kingdom. 
When a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over. It slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when a caterpillar turns to a butterfly, if a pupa is brushed, it will die. And when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, because it's because the thing is too small, too small. And it needs to break out. And midlife walks you into that wisdom. This is what transformation looks like, the mess of it the tapping at the walls of your life, the yearning and writhing and pushing until one day, one day, you emerge from the wreck, embracing both the immense dawn and the dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. a moment of quiet together. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. One one announcement. uh, From 6 to 6.30 in the morning, gentle standing yoga will be offered in this hall. So please join if you're so inspired. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.